It may be helpful for you to keep your Bible open if you would like to do so at this passage. Let me pray for us now uh, before we approach this. Father, would you guide us? Uh, Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Show us Christ in this passage, Lord, and challenge our hearts, stretch our faith, mold us, shape us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. May he be our guide tonight. Take my words, Lord, empty as they are, uh, and may they be your words of truth and hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, it's been a while since you last looked at this passage uh, and this book even, Um, so let me remind you of the story. We heard glimpses of it there. Israel have rejected the Lord as their king. That's kind of the headline of the story. So they want a man on the throne, just like the other nations around them. But the Lord, in his mercy, despite being aggrieved by their rejection, gives them a king. Now, in fact, in the original Hebrew text, the word to describe this human king that they're looking for is actually the Hebrew word nagid, nagid, which means prince, not king, but prince. So even though the people have rejected God, the Bible still makes it clear that God is the king. Saul is but a prince. So the Lord reveals to Samuel then that Saul is the one who has been chosen. And Samuel anoints him as the prince of Israel. But he does this privately. That happened just before our reading. And he also in that moment tells him prophetically that a series of things are about to happen to him. And this is kind of going to prove that all of this is actually real, that this anointing is real. Now, folks, put yourselves into Saul's shoes for a moment. You know, what must he be thinking here? Do I believe any of this? Who am I to be the king of all Israel. And why on earth is Samuel, this prophet, this man of God, so interested in me out of thin air? Could he, surely has he got it wrong somehow? Has he misheard the Lord? You can imagine, can't you, Saul, just grasping at straws here, struggling to wrap his head around any of this. But in verse 9 of what we read, we see straight away that this transformation takes place. We're told immediately that God changed Saul's heart. And no doubt then this would have happened through the course of this day when these three signs that Samuel had promised actually come to pass. Namely, there's three of them. He was first to meet with two men. The second one, he was meeting with these three travelers, and one of them would have this holy bread, and he was going to get some. And finally then, he would have this grand encounter with prophets, and he would be filled with the Spirit of the Lord, we're told. And undoubtedly, straight away, you know, that's that's the flashing light there, isn't it? The Spirit of the Lord. This is what causes this transformed heart, isn't it? We know through New Testament lens that the Holy Spirit is the one 
who works in our hearts, and he's continually conforming us, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. So as Saul tries to get on with his day after this strange, strange encounter with Samuel, all these weird, let's face it, weird things start happening, but it's exactly as Samuel said they would. And the big crescendo that comes is that the Spirit of God comes powerfully upon him. Folks, it's clear. God is confirming Samuel's anointing of Saul, isn't he? He's confirming that this is not make-believe. This is real. But God is also doing another thing, which is equipping him for the task that lies ahead. So he's transforming his heart. He's making him ready to carry out the role of king, changing his attitude, preparing him for what lies ahead. Now, this is a real pointer to God's mercy when we think about it, because the people, remember, have totally rejected their true king, the one true king who is the Lord. Now, if we were the Lord, if I was the Lord in that circumstance, I'd be thinking, well, you know, fine then, have your king, I'm out of here, I don't care what happens to you, but not so with the Lord. He is so merciful. He is so gracious. He actually grants them their sinful request. And he even seeks to change the heart of Saul and make him ready to be a good king. I wonder, folks, when you think personally, think about your own life. Have you felt the transformational power of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart? Of course, at the point of conversion, there ought to be a sizable, tangible change in our hearts as we realize our sin, the sin that we have before a holy God, but also then our need of a savior to rescue us of that sin. And then as we begin to see that life with Jesus as Lord is somewhat different to how we'd been living in the past. So yes, there's this transformation that takes place then. But what about in other ways, maybe perhaps smaller ways, more subtle ways? Have you ever felt the Spirit of the Lord preparing you for something in your life? Perhaps maybe a role in this church family here as a musician or up at the front preaching or as an elder or committee member or someone who works with children. Perhaps in your career, maybe a new job or a, a promotion somehow, have you felt the Spirit of the Lord preparing you? Perhaps you've stood at the front of a church like here or somewhere else and you've made vows in marriage. Or maybe as you've been waiting for the birth of a child, have you felt God shaping you and equipping you for such a time as this? I wonder what is the Lord shaping you for even now in this last month and week and day for what lies ahead tomorrow and beyond. The Holy Spirit of God no doubt works powerfully in our hearts. He equips us and it's primarily equipping us to be better followers of Jesus. But our sinful nature, we know this, don't we? Our sinful nature is always working against the Holy Spirit who works within us. But thankfully, praise the Lord, 
God by his spirit can work miracles. And another thing that we know is that it's always according to his purposes. So God doesn't transform us according to our list of demands or according to what we think the future should be or is going to be. It's always for the things that God has in store for us to do. So Ephesians 2, that beautiful verse, 2.10, we are God's handiwork and we're created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. He has the plan. He knows where we're headed. And so he prepares us for it. So folks, rest assured then, as the Lord calls each of us to do different things in our lives, be it big things or, or small things, he sends his spirit to work powerfully within us. He gets us ready. He doesn't leave us empty-handed or alone. Now, that being said, in the next few verses in this passage, we still see Saul's reluctance to take hold of this future that lies before him. And actually, it's quite a funny encounter that he has with his uncle. It really is quite humorous. So in verse 15, his uncle asks him, you know, what did Samuel say to you? Now, what did Samuel say to Saul? He said quite a lot to Saul, and some of it was pretty massive. But Saul gives so little in response to his uncle here, does he not? He doesn't mention a thing about being anointed as a king or seeing three separate prophecies come true or even this moment of feeling the Spirit of the Lord change his entire heart into a new heart. None of that gets mentioned. All he says is, Ah, well, sure, Samuel reassured me that the donkeys were safe. Like, who cares about donkeys? They're completely immaterial in the grand scheme of what has just taken place. So what we know immediately is there is a clear sense in which Saul is in denial here. And he's showing a reluctance to step forward, to claim what is right for him, to walk in the path that God has laid out for him. And we see this again if you look later on in verse 22. Uh, this is the moment when Saul has been selected as king by Lot. And where is he? He's nowhere to be found. The whole of Israel have gathered here. And, you know, finally, this big crescendo moment, the name comes out. It's Saul, right? Where is he? Everyone's looking around and he's gone. He's not even in sight. So much so that they have to ask the Lord, where is he? And actually, he's hiding. He's in hiding in amongst the supplies. Now, look, in some kind of positive sense, we could maybe spin this to say this is humility. It's humility here. He doesn't want to kind of put himself forwards unnecessarily. He doesn't want to be too presumptuous that it's all going to be about him. But at the same time, this is a calling from the Lord, from the sovereign Lord. And it kind of, I was thinking, my mind immediately went to Jonah, another one who was told to do something, go to Nineveh, preach the word of God to these people who need to repent. But what does he do? He just turns away. He goes the opposite direction. He runs. And Saul does the same. He hides. He's hiding from the clear and direct calling of the Lord God. Look, it's one thing to be nervous. 
It's one thing to be afraid or, you know, overwhelmed even by the task that lies before you, or maybe to feel inadequate, a bit like Moses did. I feel so inadequate. I need help. I need my brother with me. Okay. But when God, when the Lord God calls us to things in our lives, our response should be to trust in him. When Abram was called, you remember Genesis? He was called to pack up and go, to leave his homelands, to leave the people that he knew, the world that he knew. And what's more, God didn't even tell him where he was going to go. He said, just go and I will show you later where you're going to go. This was a huge risk, a massive step into the unknown. But what did he do? He went. He showed faith. He trusted in the Lord. What about Joseph? Joseph showed faith in the Lord too, didn't he? Even as his brothers sought to discard him, even as he was sold into slavery, even as he was locked up again into prison for doing nothing wrong, and God used him mightily. Daniel, Daniel showed faith in the Lord, didn't he? When his home city was destroyed, he was whisked off to Babylon, this great big empire city. Again, the Lord used him mightily to impact kings and entire empires. And then there's Jesus, the one who came into the world saying, I am not here to do my will, but I'm here to do the Father's will. He showed us what true obedience looks like, didn't he? Remember what he cried out in Gethsemane? Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours. Not my will but yours. Even as this dark and dangerous and lonely path laid out before him, he still followed the plan of his father. Folks, what paths are lying before you? What paths lie ahead of you? What is God asking us to do? What is he preparing us for? Whatever it is, our response ought to be one of faith and trust. Let's not be like the Saul's or the Jonah's. Let's not hide, let's not run away. Rather, let's do as Jesus himself showed us to do. Let's trust that the Father's plans are good and let's walk in them. Now, the next few verses are truly mesmerizing. In verse 17, Samuel calls all the people of Israel together, okay? And if you have like a mind that pictures things, I want you to try and picture this scene, okay? So we are talking hundreds of thousands of people here. Uh, we know that because in the next chapter, Saul does a census and there's 300,000 men of Israel and I think 30,000 of Judah. We have a huge number of people brought together here. Okay, and what happens is Samuel's trying to order them in some kind of way, and he gets them together in their tribes. So we know this, the 12 tribes of Jacob. So you know, hundreds of thousands of people split into 12 groups, so huge groups here. And he then gets them within their tribes to stand in their clans. Now, the first thing that happens is that Samuel explains what's going on, the situation. 
And he does this by simply expressing what God has told him to say. Remember, he's the prophet. God speaks through Samuel. And once again, what does he do? He makes clear that the people have abandoned the Lord. So despite his awesome power, despite the history that they all have together, them and the Lord, the Lord redeeming them, saving them, rescuing them, bringing them through into promised lands and everything, they have turned around and dismissed God as their king. Now, folks, it's real easy, real easy for us to sit here and say something like, oh, those silly, sinful Israelites. How could you possibly look back at what God has done for you so wonderfully, so amazingly, and yet disregard him and reject him? But the truth is, we are guilty of the same, are we not? We know what our heavenly Father has done for us. We know how he lovingly sent Jesus into this world to lay down his life for us. We know the sacrifice that Jesus made. We know the price he paid. We know how he secured our freedom from sin and our forgiveness. And yet each and every day we rebel against this Savior. Folks, this is the, it's a reality of life. But praise Jesus because we are freed from the penalty of our sin. We're freed from the penalty of our sin, but we're never free from the presence, from the position of sin right here. So just like Paul says in Romans 7, we do what we do not want to do, and what we don't do is what we ought to do. But thanks to the love and the grace of God alone, we are saved. We are saved by his grace. Jesus has completed the work for us so we can find redemption from our sin by faith alone. So all that to say, let's not be too harsh on the foolishness of the Israelites here. Our sin is just as great as theirs. Now, back to this story, and this is, this is where I'm headed here. This really is spectacular. Hundreds of thousands of people are gathered. Now, think this through with me, okay? Saul, previously, has already been anointed as king as God led Samuel, the prophet, to him. And it was all done privately. So now all these people, hundreds of thousands of people, have gathered to go through a very human process of selecting a king publicly. And they do that by casting lots. So first they cast lots of the tribes. And, you know, there's only 12 of them, so you can imagine 12 little pieces of paper in someone's hat. Pull one out. Bang, here we go. Oh, it's the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, then all the rest can kind of move to the side. Tribe of Benjamin come to the front. And we have thousands of people here, hundreds and hundreds of clans here. And again, we'll write all the clan names down. We'll put them into this hat. We'll pull one out. And what have we got? The clan of Matri. Okay, so then the clan of Matri come to the front. Everyone else goes to the back. And we still have thousands of people gathered in this clan. And out comes one single name, the name of Saul. 
Now, mathematically speaking, the chances of this happening are just incredibly small. But is this not an amazing, staggering reminder of how sovereign our God is? Casting lots may appear like total random chance. So any of the 12 tribes could have been chosen. Then any of the hundreds of clans could have been chosen within that tribe. Then any of the thousands of men could have been chosen within that clan. But the Lord directed it all. Listen to this verse from Proverbs 16, 33. It's short. It says this, the lot is cast into the lap you know, the lap of luck, the lap of the gods. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Folks, there is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as random chance. God, our God, he plans, he ordains every single thing that happens on this earth. You may say coincidence, the Bible, God's word, says providence. And there's no better example of this, none at all, than the cross of Christ. Listen to how Peter the apostle describes the events of Good Friday in Acts chapter 4. This is after the death and resurrection, okay? And he's praying to God. And he says this in his prayer to the Father. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they all did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that staggering? So Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentile people, along with all the people of Israel at that time living in that place, they all come together, they all combine, they all decide, let's crucify this man Jesus. But, but it was the Lord who had planned that from the very beginning of creation. God's will was such that Christ would come to die. Folks, this God does not make things up as he goes. He doesn't just, you know, react to situations as they happen. He plans to perfection. And he has planned for our rescue from our sin through Christ and the cross. So let's jump back in the first Samuel 10. In his sovereign providence. The Lord brings it about then that Saul is chosen as this king. So first he was handpicked to be anointed by God's prophet Samuel. Now he is chosen by Lot in the presence of all Israel. Uh, and look at the end of verse 24. And actually we get a sense that the people understand this. The people understand that God is in control of what just happened here because they, they accept the outcome pretty immediately and they just start shouting, long live the king, long live the king. 
And there's an interesting little note in verses 23 and 24. The people are impressed with Saul. They're really impressed with him. Why? Well, it's based on one thing, and it's a, it's a trivial thing, and it's one thing alone, and it is that he is tall. Here is a tall man. He's a man, and he's tall. Wow, we love him. He is our king. Long live the king. They like the idea that this guy has a physical presence about him. They like the idea, oh, here's a guy. He must be strong. He must have a big character. He's not going to be pushed around easily. He's not going to be bullied. No one's going to look down upon this guy. This is our king. But we know, oh, how wrong they are. Oh, how wrong they are. We know the story. We know what's around the corner because soon this tall king is going to be rejected by the Lord because it's not just height that makes a good king. It is heart. And Saul's heart does not belong to the Lord. So folks, lots to learn here from this key moment in Saul's life. Firstly, the Lord transforms us by his spirit. He prepares us to do the work that he has planned in advance for us to do. Secondly, the Lord has a path for us all as individuals to go down in our lives. His plans are for our good and they're always according to his sovereign purposes. And all we've got to do is trust. Trust that he is good. No point hiding, no point running away, we follow the will of our Father as Jesus did. And thirdly, finally, this God is supremely sovereign over this world. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as random chance who you bump into in the street. It's not random. Our great God is in control. And most significantly of all, he has brought about our salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. His death bought and paid for our freedom. And it was decided, in fact, from before the world began. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an incredible story that speaks such truth into our lives. We thank you, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We cannot imagine how lost we would be without it. We cannot imagine knowing you without your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself so clearly, so truly by, by your word and all these stories, all these characters, how you shaped them, how you molded them, and how you pointed in the Old Testament toward a savior who was coming. And then everything that happened through the New Testament points us back to Jesus and the cross. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over our world. We thank you that you have plans that we can trust in. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that all these plans are according to your good and perfect purposes. Lord, if it was all up to us, if we had our own destiny, our own fate in our own hands, oh boy, it would not be good. So Father, we recommit ourselves to trusting in you this evening. 
Whatever it is that lies before us, whatever it is that we're anxious about tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, whatever it is we're longing for, but maybe we've been praying and it hasn't been answered how we like. Father, give us peace. Give us hope and remind us of this truth that you have plans that are for our good. Help us to trust in you, we pray. And we thank you above all for your Holy Spirit who has changed us completely, opening our blind eyes to see Jesus as our Savior. Lord, may we never take him for granted. May we never lose sight of the cross of Christ, that place where Jesus paid it all for us. It's all about him. Impress that on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.